Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. Well, my first guest this week has packed so much in to a short career, it's hard to believe that he's still only 25 years old and it may well be that he might have a significant career after He's uh, finished in the saddle because he's got quite a few irons in the fire. We'll find out very shortly. He rode another grade one victory last week. He had to share the spoils with one of yesterday's heroes, Aidan Coleman. But he's riding high. He is Johnny Burke. Johnny, great to see you. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Great to be here. I said it's, it's, it's amazing that you're, you're only 25 because so much seems to have happened in you know, quite a short space of time. One of the biggest jobs in, in racing when you were only, only 18 years old. How do you sort of feel about the game now? That's just great. It's been, it's been great to me. Um, I had to kind of flick through my photos this morning to remind myself of that time. Um, but it's been it's been a long journey, but um, it's good. Yeah, I'm enjoying it. So tell me where it all started. Obviously, your your dad Liam's a, a, a trainer. Was it always written in the stars that this would be your your life? Uh, I suppose it was. There was always horses. It was like as soon as I was born, it was just horses. Um, he was lucky enough to train for a host of Paul Nichols' owners. Um, Mr. Barber, um, Mr. Roach, Mr. Hales, all these people. Um, and we had nearly 100 horses growing up, but it was mainly point of pointers, and, and that was kind of where it started. And he never left me wanting for anything with ponies and, and whatnot, but um, it was just always horses, yeah. And is, is that the way he'd grown up as well? Had it been, had it been a whole generation? Has it been a whole generations of Burks? Yeah, it was. Um, he, his family was warned, but he, he was just always horses. Um, Work for Mouse Morris and Fonzie O'Brien, I think. Um, but he rode as an amateur, um, and an injury stopped him, stopped him short, and he started training, and um, he's still training today. He's actually taken back out his license to ride too. So, and I mean, we were discussing with everyone will know now because he's a he's a pretty quiet, unassuming guy, and suddenly he was thrust into the headlines <laughs> last week as part of this inquiry into into John Warwick, and he said he found that found that pretty tough. He did, he did, and I think in the sense that. He's a hard-working man, a quiet man, and um, he just gets on with his work. He'd work from as soon as it was daylight in the morning until dark at night, and um, just to be caught in the wrong place at the wrong time, I think it just hit him a bit um, for no fault of his own, so he was doing a, a neighbour a favour. So uh, I think being caught up in all that with the bad press just hit him, but um, he's fine. He, he had a, a, a nice winner in Clamell in the week, and... Um, I'm, I'm sure me riding a few winners too is um, hel- helping him too. Were you a bit worried about him? Because I mean, he said in the in the in the papers that he it had rocked him a little bit. I, I was I was actually because when I say he's a quiet man, he didn't even say it to me. Um, first I saw of it was when it flashed up on my phone, so it did a bit. But but when I spoke to him, he was fine. And and as I said, he's a hard working man. He just gets on with the job, so yeah, he's fine. Sounds like a, a quite an idyllic upbringing for you. You quite close family. Yeah, we are. We are. Um, 
actually my mum passed away when I was young. Um, I was only five. Today is actually her um, anniversary. So um, with that, my sister was, I was five when mum passed and she was nine. So with that, my sister and my sister and dad kind of stuck together and, and my sister kind of brought me up because he was busy with training horses and point of pointing and doing everything, trying to keep everything going as well as we were trying to grow up. So um, my sister's in Australia now, so um, we would have been very close and still are very close. Um, so it, it was a good upbringing, but uh, we we great people, we great staff working for us and we great owners and still have great owners. Um, and our neighbours were great as well. I was just very lucky growing up, very fortunate, yeah. And is your sister in racing as well? Yeah, yeah. she, she works for a trainer out in, um, <coughs> excuse me, in Australia, Matthew Smith, um, secretary and going racing and stuff. She's out there two years now, so um, I think lockdown helped keeping her out there. I don't think she'd have lasted if lockdown didn't didn't hit, but she's she's enjoying it, but um, I'd obviously like to see her soon if I could too, you know. Yeah, you must miss her. Oh, we do, of course I do. Um, I haven't seen her in a long time now, but... Um, I, she, she's getting a great kick out of my career as well. Um, yeah, she, she's um, every day. It's um, every morning and night we speak, and um, she's getting great enjoyment too. Yeah. So when do you feel that the career really started to roll? I mean, you were, as I say, you were you were young when you got significant success, but you, know, you started riding what sixteen as soon as you could. Yeah, like from day one, I was I was lucky. Um, my next door neighbour was Davy Condon, and Paul Towner wasn't far away as well, so. They were probably two idols for me growing up, and, and I was lucky enough to go on to live with Paul and Davy, um, live with both of them, and, and to this day I still speak to them. Um, and I suppose at 16, I had my first ride in Cork Racecourse. I had two rides the same day for Dad. First one finished seven or eight, and the second one won. And it was in Dad's colours, and you just couldn't write it. It was very special, and um, it, it kind of spiralled from there a bit. I started took it upon myself to start ringing for rides then and dad was going mad he said don't be annoying trainers because he wouldn't make time to him but I rang everyone just every bumper there was I rang every trainer I could and and I just tried to get on as best I could and um, I went from there and then I, I turned conditional I won the Land Rover bumper for Willie Mullins um, I think it was 2014 very much so um, and I was riding out for Willie on school holidays and any chance I got and um that that was kind of the turning point, I think, and and I always wanted to turn conditional, but the right time was didn't know when, I suppose. And um, like Gary Cribben was kind of overseeing me a bit, uh, jockey's agent in Ireland. He does Mark Walsh and Rachel Blackmore, and and um, he was a big help to me, and and he was obviously keen for me to turn conditional, as a jockey's agent would be. So a month after Punchestown, I turned conditional, and um, just tipped away then from there, and I started right. I was in Willie's and no no maids. And then back home with Dad as well. I mean, given what you're seeing now and given the profile that you had as a young, aspiring jockey then, do you ever think, I shouldn't have left Ireland? I could have had one of those massive jobs where I'm riding these grade one horses every week. It was a series of circumstances that led to me moving to England. Um, I'd probably have to go back to when I got the POTS job. Um, I got the POTS job, I think, two or three months after turning conditional. I mean, that, that's an extraordinary <coughs> role to have at the time. I mean, the late Alan Potts, the late Anne Potts, they had a, an amazing string of horses. You're immediately 18, five-pound claimer, you're rung up and, and offered this job. Yeah, yeah, it was in funny circumstances. Like Henry de Bram had, um, had approached my dad a couple of weeks previous to know where I was riding out, and I went in every Monday riding out, and um, came out of the blue, he rang me up and said, Alan wants to appoint you 
first jockey. So it, it kind of didn't hit home really straight away. It size in Europe, size in John, all these horse to horses to ride. And um, probably I was too young to realise. So I just dived in and got stuck in. So uh, shortly after getting the job, I, I won on size in Europe and Gorn. It was his fourth time winning the the champion chase in Gorn, and that kind of cemented it then, and it just took off. Then size and John won a Grade One at Christmas. That was my first Grade One. Um, went to Cheltenham, had a couple of seconds and thirds. Size and Granite won a Grade One at Aintree. Shanahan's determined on to win a Galway Plate. That was all in the first year, so it couldn't have gone any better. Really. And you were only eighteen. I was only eighteen. I was gone nineteen at this stage. Um, I'd lost my claim in January, so that was gone. Um, lucky. Like, <laughs> I just couldn't not lose it because the horses were there to ride, really. Um, and then it, that brought me on. Size and John went chasing, and, and um, he won a beginners, won a grade two. And then I got to January 16, I got fallen thoroughly off Size and Silver, and I done minor damage to my back, um, just minor fractures of T3 and 4, which kept me out for six weeks. And I got back for Cheltenham, rode at Cheltenham, um, then I rode at Fairy House Aintree, was fifth in the national. And I got fall for dad's school on the Monday, and I fractured and crushed T6 in my back. So that kept me out for about three and a half months, and that was a fair blow. Um, but like everyone, every jockey gets injured, and I was after a good run to that point, so mm. um, I, I couldn't, I couldn't complain really. Um, and I got back and just pulled my socks up, and and, and things were still going okay for Mr. Potts. Um, but then his horses moved to Jessica Harrington and Colin Tizard, and and I felt it was slipping on me, so. so on an amicable agreement, we split, we went our separate ways, and I went freelance. When you say you felt it was slipping on you, how do you, how do you mean? Did you just feel that you didn't have the connections with those trainers that you had had with? I think Henry so. Um, I'd never ridden for Jesse, and I'd never ridden for Colin Tizard. So, and obviously he was in England and she was in Ireland. So, just wasn't really sure what way it was going to work, and it was everything was a bit up in the air about the whole thing. So, um, just felt it was going, and things weren't really going well either. So. I just felt it was slipping, so um, I took myself back and we had an amicable split. So, As I say, you're, you're still only 19 at the time, so everything's in front of you, yet you've already won Grade 1 races. How difficult was that in your own head to re-establish yourself, given that you'd had the taste of success at that very high level? Yeah, I suppose it was hard, but I was ready for the challenge, I suppose, and I just got stuck in and started riding out everywhere I could. Um, kept going into Willie's Gardens... Everywhere, everywhere I could go, I just got going. And um, I was busy, I was plenty of rides, and um, that brought me to December where I broke, broke my leg. So then that came on top shortly after the split with Mr. Potts, I broke my leg, that was two months. I got back for three weeks, um, and I got fallen in Avon, and I broke my, done my shoulder, done ligaments and tendons and all sorts of my shoulder. And that kept me out for five months. And um, that was a complete step back then. I just had to take a step back and get myself right. So. Um, then that brought me on to the summer and, and I was in I was at the Derby sale with Dad and um, got a call to know would I be interested in moving to England and uh, it was to Charlie Longs and that's kind of how I ended up here and I remember that call and I looked at Dad and I kind of said to him will I and we were both of the opinion I was at the right age I was 21 at that time then so I was at the right age um, 20 I was at the right age to, to go and give it a go if it didn't work I could always go home so Neil Channing is with me this week to reflect upon what's been an extraordinary news week and also a wonderful day's racing yesterday at Sandown at Aintree and in Ireland. Uh, Neil, I wasn't at Sandown yesterday for the first time in a long time for Tingle Creek Day. 
boy, oh boy, I wish I had been. Yeah, I've, I've been to it quite a lot. I was actually watching the kind of past Tingle Creek yesterday, on, and they were showing a few on ITV. I suddenly realised I've been to a load of them, and uh, it was a few years since I had it. It did look brilliant, though, didn't it? It was great. Really enjoyed it. And clearly, the result resonated so heavily with the crowd, just watching on. Yeah, the crowd, they were very much Team Bryony, weren't they? Um, I, I mean, I've noticed on Twitter this week, uh, there's been a few kind of begrudges. Uh, it's not 90%, it's 10% uh, in favour of Bryony, I think, the Twitter uh, breakdown of the, the whole you know, case and who goes which way. But uh, the crowd at Sandown, it definitely felt more like 99-1. Yes, of course, we will discuss the, uh, the hearing into allegations against Robbie Dunn in much more depth a little later on. And we need to stress that you're halfway through and the prosecution case, the BHA's case, now rests. Absolutely, yeah. So it's, it's interesting, isn't it, just on a general point, how, because of social media, people will follow hearings or cases like this and they feel emboldened to opine... Mm. Having, having, yeah, only heard, only having only heard, heard half the evidence. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. It's kind of uh, the in-running betting is a bit uh, like it, it, the it, uh, it, American it, election. Exactly. When, uh, you know, Trump had all the, uh, the in-person, the, the, the postal votes, but not the in-person, but the other way around, wasn't it? And, Precisely. Uh, you know, we've only seen half of it, so we don't know, you know, we can't... I've been sort of trying not to really give an opinion uh, when people have asked me about what I think of the, the both cases. Because, well, you can't give an opinion until you've well, got I the evidence, sat, I, haven't, I haven't sat in front of the whole thing anyway. Yeah. I mean, I've followed it through the media, but I, I haven't been in the courtroom or in the inquiry. So, you know, how could I really say? But, of course, the, the central point that we were making when we set this up was the fact that that's kind of irrelevant to all the people who were at Sandown Park yesterday, who, for whatever reason poured out their emotion and it made them feel good that Brownie Frost was riding well, a big I race mean, winner. You know, whatever happens this week, uh, it must have been a very tough time for Brownie Frost. Yeah. Uh, not, not just in the last week, but in the last, you know, virtually two years now. Um, so, yeah, I think they were just showing solidarity on that basis. And, and she's always had that ability to, to touch the public. Yeah, to, to resonate, and it's not just. I, I, I put it to you that it's not just that she is a successful female rider; she's got a charisma that well, yeah, has I always mean, uh, You know, I, I, I think you know, kind of grizzled old veterans and cynics on Twitter, and like you, you know, people. Yeah, I think you, you sometimes get, don't you? People sort of, you know, that kind of magic hour of the Cheltenham Festival a few years ago. Um, and, you know, some people sort of felt like all that, uh, you know, he's a dude and all that. It, it was all over the top and a bit contrived and a bit... So, you know, that's the thing that you hear people but say, I don't personally believe that. A, I think it's, it's just infectious enthusiasm. It's a very it's great. That's a very English yeah, thing, you slap, that, slap somebody it's, down that's for just, being, should, that's enjoying tall, the moment. It's tall poppy syndrome. Yeah, yeah, it? definitely. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that, but I think she suffered a bit from that, but without doubt. And uh, and I think actually the, the the wider public, the people that aren't so much, you know, racing insiders so much, uh, they they don't feel that way. They see what they see, yeah. and they and they like what they see. They just think, isn't it great? She's she's winning races against the guys. You know, it's it's nice to see a girl do well in a sport that's been male dominated over the years. And uh, 
you know, she seems to enjoy it. She's, I mean, that race in Ireland the other week, that was amazing. I didn't even have a bet in it. I was screaming at home. Right, so just taking <coughs> stock of your point about the success of, of not just Brownie Frost, mm. but female jockeys this jump season. Yeah. You look at Frodon in the James Nicholson Wines mm. chase at, at Down Royal. Uh, yesterday's victory in the Tingle Creek. Rachel Blackmore on Aplutar. Yeah. Bridget Andrews yesterday on Protect Yeah, that was Rack, terrific. Yeah, and yeah. delivering one of the rides of the season at Ascot a few weeks ago yeah, on, on a Moon of Gold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was brilliant. And, uh, th th that was really good, that Ascot ride. But yeah, yesterday, uh, you know, th th I thought Protect Rack might, might struggle to stay the trip out, but it was incredible, yeah. I mean, th th to an extent, one or two of them didn't show up, but... Uh, but when we've talked before, and we have on this programme, you know, we've been going since, since 2017 and you've been a regular mm -hmm. guest on here, we've talked about... They said I'd never lost. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, he lives... He <laughs> Hanging on by a thread. He lives, he lives a mile down the road and sometimes <laughs> options at, at this time on a Sunday morning are quite limited. Um, I nearly wore my slippers in today, actually. We've, but we've talked quite a bit about... <laughs> but to be honest, would it have made any difference? I was very tempted to. I've, I'm Your sartorial efforts a, have been absolutely lamentable. I'm so. actually a new convert to slippers. I mean, who knew? I, I, I've, I've just, they're an early Christmas present. They've literally not left my feet. This is the first time I haven't worn them since Is I your very, very patient and <laughs> delightful other half giving you a pair of slippers yeah. early? Yeah, I mean, that, that's basically it. I mean, I, you know, 170,000 people have died and, uh, you know, many businesses and lives have been ruined and, and the, uh, you know, the American vultures are digging over what's left of the health service. But uh, actually, you know, the, the, the pandemic's been kind of good for me. I, I, I've, you know, I moved on some years ago to the idea that staying in your house all the time was the best thing you can do, really, and watching racing and, you know, living on social media. I'm quite enjoying that. Slippers is basically it. I don't think I will go out again. I might pop over for the odd show. Sorry, I, I, we went on a tangent there. Well, no, I'm, I'm quite enjoying the tangent. <laughs> on, on that point, how mm. you're, you're someone who's been sort of quite affected by, by the pandemic, I would suggest. You're someone who's been a little less gung-ho than I've some. In definitely terms of, taking it more seriously than most people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I haven't really... You know, I didn't eat out to help out. That didn't help much anyway, anyway. But, uh, I, I, yeah, I've, I've been to, I think I've been out to pubs and restaurants like maybe half a dozen times. So, uh, yeah, I haven't, like, I play poker, you know, I haven't, I haven't been to a live poker tournament. And that's been really thriving since, you know, the economy started to open up. And I, I have not fancied that at all. Are you going to get back out there? I don't know. Or as, I, as, I, as I could see myself just sat at home watching racing TV and not moving from my chair. It was quite good, really. Well, the man who was able to move out of his chair happily, having been in confinement last week, was Paul Nichols. Who he landed must his... have hated it, pacing up and down. Oh, the heart. Well, we you can, can ask can him now. Well, what an amazing day. Yes, go on. It wasn't amazing. It's, it's good, because normally when you ring someone up, I've just slagged them off, but I couldn't slag off Paul. I'm a massive fan. He may not realise it, but there you go. He does now. And that's the intensity with which Neil Channing studies the, the running order for this show <laughs> every week as Paul Nichols joins us on the line now. Morning, Paul. Good morning, Nick. Good morning. Uh, what, a, what a special day that was yesterday. I'm just reading through your list of, of Tingle Creek winners. Flagship Uber, Alice Senkos, two Corto stars, a twist magic, a masterminded, another twist magic, another masterminded, dodging bullets, two politologues, and now a grenadine. That is a record anyone would be justifiably <laughs> proud of. And you must have been as you drove home last night. Yeah, it was a fantastic day. Um, job done with Grenatine. You know, we'd set a stall out from 
really Sandown in April to go to Exeter, use it as a prep for this race. Having, you know, you can only get them really ready for their to run it to their very best. I always think twice a year, once in the autumn, once in the spring. And yesterday was his day and a great team effort to get him in good shape and um, to win as well as he did. But it's funny because you've had so much experience of of so many good horses. And you say, yeah, Exeter was a prep for this and he had a big weight in the in the Holden Gold Cup. But I looked at that race and I thought, yeah, he ran okay, but do I think he's going to come forward and win a single creek? In your heart of hearts, what did you really think after Exeter? He had a big chance here. That was his target. Um, we've always used that race as a prep. Um, the track suits him better. The freshness has gone off him. Of course, you know, he gave £17, I think, was to Hitman and some of the others down at Exeter. So this was all together a different race, and this was his day. And, you know, we had him right for this. He wasn't, you know, if he'd have been as fit and as well as yesterday at Exeter, he may well have gone a lot closer, but he wouldn't have won the Tingle Creek. So that, that was, a, you know, the plan always to have him ready for his life, as I always say, yesterday. Um, it was a big and he's success. Improving. He's improving. That's the thing. He's an improving horse. And, and that's the one thing, maybe, Paul, that's, that's characterised the way you've trained horses more than anyone else. You can just keep getting a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more out of horses that we think have already established where their ability level, level lies. Is that something that you think really drives you? You can always get more out of a horse. Yeah, I think they're all individuals. I mean, as it gets older, you can give them more work and they get they probably get fitter that's probably they didn't necessarily get better but actually because they're older and stronger you can get them fitter i mean the grenadine would do twice the work of hitman at the moment for example because hitman's five he wouldn't take that work give hitman a couple of years he'll be stronger he'll take that work and we can probably get him fitter and better than he is at the moment he's still improving it you know there is always improvement in those horses by achieving different things to get higher levels of fitness and Going back to old Corto Star, I think when he was 11, he was probably the best he ever ran. Those the, the bet chase and the the, the um, King George. It was because that year we'd done things differently. I think we probably got him fitter than he ever was before. Um, so fitness is a big key in having the horse being strong enough to be able to take that work. How do you know then when when they've had too much work? How do you how do you gauge just just where the right level is? Well, I always think before their first runner, like from this lad from Exeter to here, you can't ever give them enough. They'll take it. You know the horse. You know when they're taking it. And he thrives on it. As I said earlier, Hitman wouldn't, wouldn't take He'd be, have half the work because, you know, he wouldn't take it physically, mentally, because he's only a five-year-old. You know, this horse is tough now. He thrives on what we do. And I've always said, you know, um, it, you know, no matter what horse you get sent to you or what you do, it takes a couple of years to get to know them, get to know what... They need to get the best out of them and for those horses to get into our system it's not it's not something that happens overnight someone can send you a horse who's got a certain amount of ability and expect you within six weeks two months three months to get it performing at a top level well it doesn't it takes a lot longer than that as i said it can take a number of years to get those top performances out of horses and, and how when people talk about horses telling you how do, how does that manifest itself is it poor work poor eating it's just you just know you listen to your team you listen to your head lad you watch them every day you just get to know you get to know it's getting to know them as individuals and what you do to get the best out of them um it's experience as well i suppose i mean clifford and i my head lad we've been at it a long time now and you just you learn things all along and it is experience comes into it a lot 
but uh, you just get to know them. That's the thing, I think, as much as anything. OK, so this list of 12 Tingle Creek chase winners, uh, Paul, well, obviously there aren't 12 horses in there because some of them no. have won it a number of times with, I think, 11 <laughs> different jockeys as well. Um, you put them all in a race over two <laughs> miles. Who would win? Uh, I think Corto Star, probably. He was, when he was winning those back in 2005, 2006, he was probably very, very good over two miles. And um, he, he would have been hard to beat, I think, winning on his day, as it was probably over any distance when he was at his best. And, and masterminded, even though yeah, that performance in the champion chase was his signature, he was a hell of a fast horse. He was. He, I mean, he won two races. He was very good, um, as was probably Twist Magic. He was probably not quite in the same bracket as those. But I mean, he, he, it's just really they're the best of the, the, what they're against at that particular time, really. Um, Grenadine really has only come from... They were always very, very good masterminded in Corto from the start. I think Grenadine started off two years ago winning a novice handicap chase of 135 at Ascot. He's now 100, near on 170 rated. So the improvement in him has been astonishing, really. He was never naturally hit when you look and think, oh, he's going to be a grade one winner. But um, just the improvement some of them do show you. Is, well, th this is a really interesting point. Is he naturally a very, very good horse or is he just a very, very willing horse that just keeps taking it and keeps improving because he wants to do it for you? Well, I think yesterday he proved he is a very good horse, you know, to travel around there like he did, jump like he did and win five and a half lengths. He was so strong in the finish. He's obviously improving. He wasn't beat far on the champion chase last year and we probably never had any belief in him, as much belief in him then. But now we've got the measure of him. He's obviously improving. He's got plenty of confidence. And when they're like that, they can be very dangerous. Because trainers will always say to you, oh, yeah, I always knew this was a, I always knew this was a superstar. You're quite happy to concede, well, actually, he was, he was in the ruck a couple of years ago. Yeah. And... Yeah, he's very much in the mould of dodging bullets. He was in probably a decent horse, but you never thought he'd win a champion chase or a tingle creek. And they suddenly reach a peak of new ability and confidence and they end up winning those good races. When they came to the pond fence and Bryony went a little bit wider than all the other riders yesterday, was that a, was that a de de determined ploy on her and or your part? No, not at all. I never discussed that with her. She, she had a walk around beforehand and looked where the ground was a little bit better. Mm. I think she always does that a little bit. Um, and if you actually take a line from where they turn in the straight, that's nearly going wide is the shortest way because the others come round with the way the rails... Yeah. Is they sort of duck in and then back out and round, whereas she almost took a direct straight line. And so probably it might just be that's a little bit of a shorter route going wide there off the bend. But, you know, no, though, she, she always does that there. And, and having riders who, who think their way through races must be a huge asset to you. Well, of course it is. I'm very lucky to have Harry and Bryony uh, riding so well for us. And, of course, Lorcan, who did so well yesterday, losing his game. You know, you need jockeys that think like that. And uh, that's why they're, you know, ride so many winners and why they're as good as they are. Neil and I have talked, you probably heard Neil and I have talked quite a bit about yesterday and the, and the way that the result resonated with the, with the crowd there because of the very challenging week that, that Bryony's had. That, that won't have been lost on you as she came back here with, with seeing the shots of Alice uh, Plunkett interviewing her on, on ITV Racing. It, it, it's, um, it's quite something, isn't it? It was something. It was um, like the old days when Coulter used to walk down that... Um... You know, the tunnel after winning those big races and the crowd just went mad yesterday. It just, just shows how they appreciate seeing the good horses win races like that. And also, after the week, Bryony had had hitting all the headlines to be, quite honestly, hitting the headlines for the right reason. And I've always said, so let you ride and do the talking. And it did that yesterday. 
and it mustn't be forgotten, Paul, and, and I, I wouldn't expect you to, to comment on a, on a hearing or a case that's still progressing, but it mustn't be forgotten that you know, your relationship with, with Bryony now goes back, back several years, and, and you really were the first person that kind of s- spotted her talent and, and put her on, on very good horses. It might be worth just revisiting exactly what you saw in her all those years ago. Obviously, I grew up with Jimmy and rode with Jimmy, her father, and we've always gone very well. And she was pony racing, I think, with Megan at the time, and she did quite well pony racing. And she came up one summer and just wanted to have some experience, and she sort of worked hard and was very good in the school in Ringo, all our schooling, which is always a good thing. And she's never really left, to be honest with you. And, yeah, you know, I always just... She had chances on the right horses. There were certain horses that suited her, i.e. Black Corton was one that was just match made in heaven and um, she just clicked with some of those horses but you know as she's got older got more experienced and that she you know she rides as well as anybody so you're not afraid to use her you know so you know she's well here is is number two really you know yesterday it was probably a tough day for harry but he knows full well he'll have good days on hitman and harry's a team player and sometimes you have to do things that suits the team and um yeah i'm very lucky to have both of them both of them as i said earlier but brian is just you know mature she rides well well as anybody, you know, and um, as a result show. But you, I mean, you've made made the point there about her tenacity, and we, we've seen that time and time again. But I remember when she was sitting in this studio two or three years ago when she was just starting to ride big race winners, and she said she wasn't really sure about whether to, to make a, a real fist of it and, and go professional. And you said, go on, get on with it. You don't need to be an amateur anymore. You want to get paid for this and do it properly. Yeah, and I think her first winner possibly was Black Corton as a professional, and he won. And she's never looked back, and um, yeah, it's been a huge success story. It's you know, you know, there's been ups and downs, but that's the same in anybody's career. And um, you know, after we like she said, she kept her head down. She turned up yesterday in the in top form and gave that horse a fantastic ride. So you know, um, and she'll always do that. You know, what's been happening now will soon be history. We'll all move on from it, and she'll carry on riding winners and at the top level. And have you and he, have you and she discussed it at all, or do you try and keep it sort of strictly professional? Yeah, completely. Um, I know she's had a chat with Clifford about it a few times. I haven't even discussed it with Jimmy because I didn't really want to get involved. I've, I've said my opinions to her privately, um, and I've always said let you ride and do the talking. Um, and I've, you know, offered a certain amount of advice, but quite honestly, on the case and what's been happening, I've, I've kept out of it and just got my head down and carried on training winners and just you know watch as you have really. Yeah. Um, Paul, you you mentioned the horse who finished second yesterday and you've mentioned him two or three times during this interview. It makes me think that you think this might be the next star, Hitman. He's a good horse. I've always always, um, seen that at home. Um, And at home, there wouldn't be nothing between them. And, you know, if he'd have jumped the second ass quick yesterday, he wouldn't have been beat too far. He just made a bit of a novice mistake that stopped him dead. And actually, credit to him, the got back together and stayed on strongly from the back of the last and finished second. As I said, he's five years old. He's very, very inexperienced. He's a big raw horse. He can only improve. Those horses just, you know, just going to manage it right. And um, he'll win some nice races in time. When the market opened up before the Beecher chase yesterday, yeah. and I saw Snow Leopard S nine to two or four to one or whatever. She was that like, struck me immediately. Thought, as too God, short. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's way too short. short. Yeah, yeah, yeah. After a fence or two, 
probably a seven to four shot, it's wasn't become she? A, it's become, you know, like definitely the the national course has become a bit more of a front runner's course, hasn't it? I mean, we you know we know that from the big race itself that. Uh, you know the old days of having one that would sort of hunt around the hunt first, around circuit, the first yeah. circuit and pl get back in a real old plodder. Yeah, that's no good anymore, is it? In the Grand National, you know, you want something that's bang up there early on. And yeah, I, I, again, I didn't, I, I wasn't really, I actually, I wasn't watching Aintree as intently as I was watching Sandown. But I, I must admit, I thought halfway around, I thought, oh god, they're going to struggle to to, to catch her back. Yeah, I backed her in the National Hunt Chase last year, actually. Uh, she, she is a bit of an old friend of mine. I, I, she's lovely, isn't she? But uh, she had time, a lot of time off and foals and all kinds. Yeah, she's a, a splendid mare whose jumping was a joy to behold. And what I thought was quite unusual about mm. this performance, Neil, was that normally if you've had a horse who's given her or his all around these fences... Yeah, the second and third did look like they yeah, might pick her up. Then gets challenged. Yeah. It, there was a sort of oh she's going to get yeah, collared, yeah, except yeah. she did. She would yeah, not yeah, lie yeah. down. No, it was. Uh, I mean, I was partly watching down the field. I managed to pack. I managed to pack the seventh first six, and the sixth first five. So that was good. I enjoyed that. Um, but no, no. I, I, even even like with fifty yards to run, it wasn't totally clear, was it? I mean, I think you know she traded a hundred on prior to this, and uh, um, you know. Wouldn't you know, one more one more stride? She might have been in trouble there. She wasn't. She wasn't to be denied. To the joy of so many at Aintree, so many people who who had clearly uh, backed her, but particularly to her owner and her breeder, Marietta Fox Pitt, who's uh, who's joining us on the line now. Marietta, good morning. Good morning. I mean, it was I'm... a very very special day. You've been involved in racing, breeding, owning horses for so long. Where does this stand in your in your life with horses? Well, I brought her great 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 grandmother as a foal in the probably nineteen sixty. So I've had the family a long time, and, and I'm I'm very fond of her. But I think she went on ahead after the finishing line. I don't think she was giving up at all. No. No, and that was that was sort of what was was quite unusual about it. You know, she just would not be be denied. When 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 you were watching her through her very early days, Marietta, as a as a she loves racing. She loves the whole thing. She loves jumping. She thinks it's great. She loves every minute of it. You know. So, so, so she, <clears throat> it's not all horses do. She, from the day she was born, she used to gallop. She was in the 40-acre field the day she was born, and she went the whole way around it. That's what she likes to do, is to gallop and to jump. That's her fun. In, in, all, in all your years of experience, can you, can you tell when you've got a good one on your hands from a very early stage? Well, I decided she was a good one the day she was born, but I don't really know why that was. It was the first day after my husband died that I felt really happy. And uh, I pulled her out of mother and she stood straight up and said, I own the world. And I thought, yeah, you're going to be great. <laughs> so was there a bit of you that... I mean, you're, you're clearly a sort of pragmatic person, but was there a bit of you that thought there was a bit of divine inspiration in this? No idea, really, but I just felt that she was going to be great and she, you know... 
she decided she was going to be great, actually. And she proved it. And I, I'm, everyone's fascinated by the fact that, that she's, she's had a foal and then come back to the, to the race course. But you put a slightly different, different spin on it, really. Is that, well, why shouldn't she? Yeah, why shouldn't she? That's what she likes doing. And, you know, you don't get very many good race horses in a lifetime. You might as well enjoy them. And but, but she does well because Charlie and all the lot there love her. You know, she's very important to them. And that's what she likes. She likes being Queen Bee. Uh, Mar Marietta, how, how pleased were you for, for Charlie Longston yesterday? This was clearly a success that meant an awful lot to him. I was very pleased for him. I'm delighted for him because he's done a fantastic job with her. He takes a lot of trouble. And he's got a girl, Jess, who worships some ground she walks on. And when I take her back there, she bursts into tears. She's so pleased to get her back. <laughs> And you don't get many girls like that in life. And, and, and my girl at home worships her. There's something about her. Everybody adores her. And that's what she likes. So that's all good. But I'll tell you something else, too. I've taken two... I've got two show-jumping clones off her, waiting to be inserted into males next year by Charco Blue. How about that? All right, so you're going to have to... For this program, Marietta, you're going to have to just explain how that, <laughs> how, that, how that works and how that's come about. Well, I wanted to be the top, top event horse and show jumper. And I thought she jumped so well. I've never had a horse jump like she jumps. I thought we'd better breed a jumper from her. <laughs> so you've cloned her? You take, take, you take the eggs off them mm -hmm. and you send the eggs to Italy. And the stallion eggs go from um, Holland and meet up in Italy and they fertilise them and then they put them in the deep freeze where they're waiting. I've now got two embryos sitting in deep freeze in Italy. So who's, which stallion's um, DNA do you use or which stallion sperm do you I use for this? Who is the star of the horse that won the gold at the Olympics? Right. He's the top star, he's top show jumping star in the world. And uh, there's no point in using a second grade one, is there? <laughs> I mean, this could be, I mean, this could be the most extraordinary result. Well, that's what I'm hoping. Well, um, I have very funny ideas. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes the unconventional can be beautiful, Marietta. <laughs> anyway, that's bad. I want I want to just quickly re rewind all the way back to to 1960 when you bought the great great however many greats it was grand dam of this mare. Can you remember what it was that made you buy her? Yep, uh, Lord Howard the Walden gave me a list of things that I was allowed to bid on, <laughs> and I went round them all and I decided which one I liked the best, and I bid for it and bought it, and it cost me 800 guineas. And she bred me five group winners. Wow. Wow. That's, um, that's quite something. I've gone downhill ever since. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure ardent National Hunt fans would necessarily agree with that.
Do you get as big a kick out of this? My great uncle won the Grand Prix de Bordeaux and the Prix Robert Hennessy in Paris. He was a pretty, he was a pretty good chaser, don't you? Yeah. I was going to say, do you get as big a kick out of this now as you did then? Oh, I think. It's more fun as you get older, I think. Okay, reflections on the BHA hearing involving jockey Robbie Dunn very shortly. Of course, that still has quite a long way to play out because it's only the prosecution case that rests. Um, the High Court has heard the case against Graham Gibbons brought forward by Freddie Talitsky on account of Gibbons' alleged negligence in a race at Kempton that led to Talitsky's fall in 2016 that uh, led to him being paralysed from the waist down. Chris Cook has been in the High Court this week. Uh, what Chris has been, I would imagine, quite an upsetting case to follow in, in every respect. Yeah, that's absolutely right, of course, because of the, the consequences. Um, I, I think one of the first things that Ryan Moore said when he took the witness stand as an, an expert witness um, called by, by Freddie Tillitsky's legal team was that uh, he obviously feels tremendous sympathy for, for Freddie in the situation that he's been left in. Um, but he did also say, you know, he feels a, a lot of sympathy for, for Graham Gibbons, who's having the blame sort of directed at him. Um, I think Ryan said something like it's a, a wretched situation for um, for everybody. Uh, and, you know, anyone could agree. The, the first day's evidence, um, Freddie was subjected to cross-examination at some length by the barrister appearing on behalf of Graham Gibbons, which involved uh, seemingly endless replays of the race, in particular the moment where um, Freddie's injuries were sustained. It was a lot to have to sit through. And, um, you know, at the very end of it, the judge made a point of thanking Freddie for, for being so patient and for um, putting up with watching it again and again and asking probing questions about the, the moments before uh, the, the fall and the injury. You know, and that, was, that was actually quite sort of an emotional moment, I think, for a lot of people in the courtroom. Um, you know, that she acknowledged that and, you know, that he stood up to it so well. What was the most striking piece of evidence that you heard this week? Uh, I don't know if I'd care to pick out one. There were, there were a lot of sort of dramatic moments. I mean, you know, you'll know yourself perhaps that um, when, when you're in court for a whole week, there's tremendous longers. It's, it's a bit like what your man said about war. You know, it's long periods of, of boredom punctuated by moments of, you know, intense excitement. Um, excitement, probably the wrong word, but, you know, there were moments of intense drama certainly this week, um, you know, including when... The, the credentials of people that we know very well, like Ryan and Jim McGrath, you know, their credentials to be expert witnesses were were called into question. We had, um, we had Jim Crowley saying that uh, he, you know, he could smell alcohol in the, the breath of Graham Gibbons on, on the day in question, um, which was obviously um, countered by the defence. Um, you know, Graham questioning whether that could possibly be true. I gather there's another jockey been on Twitter this week who was not called as a witness saying that, you know, he, he was there that day and, and did not smell any such thing. The Freddie Tillitsky's legal team don't seem to be sort of uh, making a particular argument that that was what led to the collision. They, I think the expert testimony of Ryan Moore is, is what guides them and, and what he's put in his report is that um, Graham's actually made a deliberate move to go back to the rail and that's end up, ended up causing uh, this accident. I suppose the most crucial part of this case, Chris, is the what-if isn't it? And isn't the defence case chiefly resting on if you find Gibbons negligent, then what does this mean for the sport as a whole? And how is the sport going to operate 
legally and functionally moving forward? Yeah, I see a lot of that concern, particularly on social media. I think really one has to acknowledge that that duty of care that's being described, that jockeys owe to one another in a race, that has always existed. Even if you go back to the, sort of the prior case that people remember in this area, um, when the jockey Peter Caldwell suffered a really serious spinal injury at Hexham in 1994, um, and he brought a case against Adrian Maguire and Mick Fitzgerald, which ultimately failed. Um, whilst the Court of Appeal um, you know, reinforced that decision, as it were, um, they, they didn't say you know, there can be no circumstances in which um, a jockey might successfully sue another jockey for negligence leading to injuries. Um, that, that duty of care, to take reasonable care for everybody else who's in the race, that has always existed. Um, and it will always be a question of the particular facts of each case, whether or not that duty has been breached. Obviously, Freddie's legal team say that there's enough there to conclude that in the circumstances of this case, it was breached. Um, Patrick Lawrence QC, who's you know, very, a tremendously effective courtroom barrister, um, was making a great deal of how this is a dangerous sport in which split-second decisions are always called for. Um, you know, what, what Graham Gibbons has done... Um, he doesn't think is open to criticism, but he says even if you, you do find that it is open to some criticism, we're talking about a mere error of judgment, you know, um, something that really any jockey might have done in the, the circumstances. Um, given that this is the first case that's actually reached court for 20 years, I don't know if, if we really have to worry about any particular floodgates being opened here. Um, the, the judge who tells us that she's going to produce a verdict sometime in the next three weeks, uh, is she's going to determine it with regard to the particular facts of this case. It does not mean that whenever there's interference or whenever a jockey is sort of found guilty of careless riding even, if that results in injury, it, it doesn't automatically mean that that jockey is going to be able to sue for damages. Um, I, th I think inevitably there's going to be insurance implications mm. if there's a payout in this case because, I mean, from the catastrophic injuries that Freddie suffered, it's going to be a very valuable claim if it does succeed. Um, and yes, I mean, that, that is going to raise potentially practical difficulties for whoever's arranging the insurance for jockeys. Um, it, it will get more expensive. You might even be in a situation where you, you're having to persuade an insurer to actually provide that service at all. Um, but, you know, that, that's a practical difficulty that sport will have to sort of deal with when it happens. Um, I, you know, I don't think it's remotely fair to say that because things we get difficult for horse racing and, and we've got a problem to face up to an insurance issue, you know, therefore Freddie's claim should fail when otherwise it would succeed. You know, I mean, I don't think that would be any part of the judge's thinking. That's very interesting. Can the judge award discretionary damages in this case? I.e., does she have to award the entire amount that is being claimed for or not at all? Or can she go at any, any point on that scale? Well, so the, what we've had this week was a hearing on specifically on liability. Um, the, the sum that would have to be paid wasn't really touched upon. Um, and if Judge Karen Walden-Smith rules that, um, that, in fact, the duty of care has not been breached by Graham Gibbons here um, and he doesn't owe anything in damages, then that's the end of the matter. If, on the other hand, she rules that there, there was a breach of the duty of care, then there's going to have to be further legal discussion between the teams, perhaps they'll be able to agree an amount. That doesn't seem very likely, given the sums involved. Probably they'll have to come back for another hearing at some stage, maybe next year, to determine 
you know, the, the consequences really and the, and the cost and, and what, what would have to be paid to Freddie in, in compensation. I mean, probably realistically, um, the, there would be no rush to determine an amount because the consequences for Freddie of, of what's happened at Kempton five years ago are, are going to go on and on um, for years to come. And, and you, you know, if you're acting on his behalf, you don't want to rush to some when it might emerge you know, in the months or years ahead that, that actually his condition is going to deteriorate. You know, he requires greater care. Um, so you know, that, that's, that's all for the future. That's all conditional on what the judge rules in relation to the evidence that she's heard this week. So, Chris, if you were the sports regulator, if you were running the BHA and watching the uh, Gibbons-Tolitsky case, what would you be thinking now? What, what themes would have struck you as those to zone in on, irrespective of the outcome? Well, I, I think there is an issue um, in terms of what Jockey said to Stewart's inquiry. I mean, that came up because um, Pat Cosgrove obviously gave evidence to the, the original inquiry um, to the effect that um, I think Freddie Tillitsky had been a bit ambitious in, in taking the run that he did um, and then called to the High Court this week and you know, giving evidence and oath. He, he said he gave evidence that wasn't at 180 degrees from that. It was, you know, it was nuanced, but it was different. You know, he said, um, as Jim Crowley also said when he was giving his evidence, the footage itself speaks. Um, Freddie's horse would not have been able to get as far forward as he did next to Graham Gibbons' horse if there'd never been room there at any stage. And, and when I was asked about, you know, well, why, why are you saying something different to what you said to the steward's inquiry? Um, the answer was, you know, well, there's a code of conduct among jockeys to stay neutral. You know, it wasn't something particularly involved me. It's for the stewards to determine if anybody's at fault. Um, and, you know, so uh, the, the judge put it to him, you know, is this a code of conduct to not get other people into trouble? And then you, Pat, didn't go as far as that. He said, no, that's not quite the case. But, you know, I, I, was, I was trying to, say, as it were, stay neutral. Now, uh, the stewards' inquiry is particularly important in this case because, the stewards on the day rules that it was accidental interference. They didn't find anyone at fault for what had happened. Um, and if Freddie's legal team are going to succeed, that's, that's like a hurdle that they have to overcome. You're asking a judge um, who has, you know, we believe, no prior experience of horse racing to rule that those very experienced stewards on the day got it completely wrong um, when they said it was an accident. Um, you asked about the, the BHA sort of taking... Um, lessons from this case. Uh, I think if you put this together with what's been said in the Bryony Frost hearing, there, there is a bit of a cultural issue, I think, in relation to uh, the weighing room and, and jockey's frankness with stewards um, that, that is going to have to be addressed. There's, there's just sort of a disconnect there. Uh, even when Charlie Lane was the expert for the defence um, and as a steward of some 30 years standing, when he was giving evidence, you know, he was clear that, that stewards could not always expect frankness from, from jockeys. Uh, and that, that that's a real issue for the, the regulator of the sport going forward. You know, we have to get ourselves to a, a better position, I think, where stewards can sort of rely on the evidence that they're hearing. Well, I want to bring in Lee Mottisett now, senior writer from the Racing Post, who's been uh, following the, the BHA's hearing against jockey Robbie Dunn on seven counts. Um, varyingly of, uh, of of bullying and harassment and of uh, irresponsible behaviour. Lee is uh, is on the line now. Uh, Lee, uh, morning. Yesterday was a, a an extraordinary day in so many respects, given the context of what's gone on this week. But I guess for the purposes of this exercise, we almost have to try and 
forget what happened yesterday and, and concentrate yeah. what's been going on for the previous five? Absolutely, Nick. Yeah, it, it was an amazing day yesterday. Um, I have been at Sandown on numerous occasions when a racehorse has received that sort of collective support. You know, we've been there for Corto Stars and Sprinter Sacras and in years gone by Arcus and Desert Orchids in the past when, when a horse has united people like that. But it's pretty rare to see a, a human, a racing professional, get that sort of of collective backing. But it, it, was, it was a great day. But as you say, it, it, it is completely removed from what happened at the BHA's headquarters last week and will continue to happen on Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday. And while Sandown on Saturday was a, a day to, to rejoice and to really enjoy what we saw, those of us who are watching on Zoom on Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday will have found that experience much less pleasurable. Yes, it was quite an, uh, an upsetting week in, in both these cases. And, uh, and, and let's turn our attentions to, to this one. Because we read so much of the alleged detail in the pages of the Sunday Times already, was there anything in the testimony of Bryony Frost or indeed any of the other witnesses that were called by the BHA's counsel that shocked or surprised you or those watching? I wouldn't say massively surprised me, Nick, no. But having said that, there is a difference between reading uh, reports of leaked documents in a newspaper to actually hearing the, the person on the receiving end of the alleged bullying talking uh, to a barrister. And at times that was, I still think, shocking. I think some of the, the language that we heard uh, that had been allegedly used uh, towards Bryony Frost was shocking. Um, and seeing her sadness and her emotions, I think, was was particularly distressing. Um, to hear a, uh, a young sports person saying that the isolation I felt I wouldn't wish on anybody, I, I would find it hard for anyone, I would hope, to to not be moved by that and to be worried and concerned by that as well. So I don't think necessarily we, we, we learned too much new in, in relation to Brian Frost's testimony. Um, we did hear other witnesses across the, the, the Wednesday and Thursday sessions, Nick. We heard from Bryony's father and brother. Her brother um, was pretty damning um, in a few words of the, the culture that prevails in horse racing. It's what he, he left in Britain a few years ago. And on, on, on Thursday, we heard from um, a number of valets in the weighing room who uh, gave their evidence um, and were robustly cross-examined by the BHA's barrister, Louis Weston. And then I think we had the, 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 the man who a lot of people had been waiting to hear from, Chris Watts, the now former BHA head of uh, regulatory, um, uh, former head of integrity, um, who I think it has to be said, didn't give the most convincing evidence in the world. Um, he appeared in a, in a purple jacket and tie and, his evidence sort of matched that, that lack of gravitas in his dress sense. Um, Roderick Moore, the barrister for Robbie Dunn, asked a number of, of strong, pertinent questions that raised concerns, I think, about the quality of the investigation that was carried out by, by Chris Watts, matters such as asking Bryony Frost uh, which witnesses she would prefer him to contact, uh, such as talking about having not made notes of a meeting with with Richard Johnson, Tom Scudamore and Gavin Sheehan both reported uh, concerns about the statements 
that he had taken from them. So I think there are clearly, as we go into week two um, of the hearing, going to be questions raised about the quality of that BHA investigation into, into Robbie Dunn. Um, but of course, that doesn't necessarily change uh, what's actually happened in terms of the, the alleged bullying by Robbie Dunn of Bryony Frost. Um, so I, I think it, it was a it was an interesting week one, and I sense it's going to be a similarly difficult week two because we're expecting a roll call of jockeys, past and present, to come out um, as defence witnesses. And I fear the isolation that Bryony Frost spoke about on Wednesday will be reinforced next week. Do you have any idea, Lee, who those might be? We've already heard that Richard Johnson um, is due to appear next week. As I say, Richard Johnson was already referenced on Thursday because Roderick Moore, um, so when questioning Chris Watts, points out that, that what Chris Watts had no notes of a meeting that he apparently had with Richard Johnson. So I expect we'll hear from that next week. Tom Scudamore and Gavin Sheen were both referenced, as I say, during the week. So they wouldn't be surprised if they appeared, having already been spoken to by Chris Watts. Um, but no, I don't know who else we're expecting, Nick. But if, as I say, Bridie Frost, um, uh, the, the isolation and the ostracism that she that she's spoken about, one would suspect that anybody we hear from now won't necessarily be helpful to her cause. And that's perhaps the the key takeaway from this case, isn't it, yeah. Lee? Whatever the verdict, whether or not Robbie Dunn is guilty or not, whether or not he is he is found guilty there are clearly um, aspects of this case that are going to be extremely instructive in the way that policy is formulated, not just by the BHA, but also by the Professional Jockeys Association moving forward from this, rather as we spoke about with Chris a few moments ago. Absolutely right, Nick. Those same parallels, I think, are clearly there in this case, because I think at the heart of, of this matter, at the heart of this, this, this really distressing matter, is the fact that Bryony Frost claims that she has been shunned uh, in the main by members of the weighing room for taking a complaint outside of that inner sanctum of the weighing room. Um, the, the, the matters Chris w w was talking about indicate a desire for self-policing, to an extent anyway, within the weighing room. And I think it is clear that retribution has been directed in Frost ways because she moved out of the self-policing process and went to the regulator. Now, the, B, the PGA, the Professional Jocks Association, which we shouldn't forget, wanted this case not to be heard. It called for it to be aborted a few weeks ago. Um, I think the PGA will hopefully take on board what has been said um, during uh, the first three days of this trial, because it clearly cannot be right um, for any person to receive that sort of treatment simply for going to the regulator. The PJ has um, been very quick in, in recent weeks in implementing a code of conduct for jockeys, but that does talk about initially going to a PJ representative. There should be nothing wrong for anybody if they haven't got confidence in the, in the trade association or within the weighing room to go outside of the weighing room. And I thought Paul Nichols spoke eloquently mm. Um, to you, Nick, today and yesterday when I spoke to him at Sandown, when he said he'd been a member of the weighing room for years and it was a, it was a great place, but perhaps the weighing room hasn't moved at the same pace as the rest of society. And I think this hopefully will be uh, a spur for, for that to happen 
because as I, I've, I've made the point before, Nick, the, the wing was quite clearly a different sort of, of working, envi working environment. I couldn't conceive of being brave enough to be a jockey, and the job they do is extraordinary. So it is a different sort of working environment. But it can't be so different that what would be considered normal practices and normal rights or wrongs in any other working environment, whether that's the racing TV office, the racing post office, or the offices of anybody watching this programme, whether the norms in those working environments aren't also um, present in the, in the weighing ring. It, it, I think it has to change in that way. And there are lots of sensible, clever, mature people in the weighing ring. And I would hope that when they reflect on this case, they can see that. And that Briony Frost isolation comes from whatever the, the, the final verdict of the panel, and that we can see a, a healthier environment in the future.